We talking rom-com, we talking action, we talking drama and movie classics, whatever you want, yo we have it, cause we talking movies on a podcast. So I married a film critic, so I married a film critic. So I married a film critic. Hey honey, I just wanna so talk I about the movie like casually. Critic. You don't have to so bring up very cinematography. Honestly, let's just talk about like how the characters were fun. Married a film critic. So I married a film critic. So I married Welcome to So I Married a Film Critic, a discussion between a professional film critic and lecturer and me, his wife, who just likes to watch movies for fun. I'm your co-host, Julia. This is Barry Film Critic. Hello, everyone. And tonight, we, we're, we, we're talking about a very strange film, I yeah, think. <laughs> I'd, say, I'd say so, but I mean, I love this movie. Um, the reason I wanted to watch it with you is it, it was the day they announced the, the wonderful people at Criterion who make these, you know, these, these wonderful, basically film school in a box is what I call them. They, they put together these wonderful discs and Blu-rays of these great films where they preserve them. They, you know, they, they give them an upgrade and they give you just the best extras. I, I love what they do. They just announced that After Hours is going to be released in the collection – so I realized you had not seen it, and I said, well, it's on HBO. Let's watch I love this film. I haven't seen it in some time. And in fact, the last time I watched this film is when I taught a class on the films of Martin Scorsese at UCCS. This was over 10 years ago. Um, this was back when the last film he had made at that point. Um, this was in 2006, so it was uh, – the Departed had just won Best Picture, so we had, had done a class where we watched all of his films in chronological order. Kind of looked at you know the trajectory of his career, the themes of his movies, um, where he was in his life and his growth as an artist. I'll say quickly about After Hours. It came at a really fascinating time in Scorsese's career. So in 1983, Martin Scorsese was going to make The Last Temptation of Christ, and it didn't happen. The studio Paramount was uncomfortable with it. They just kept cutting the budget. They're like, we really don't want you to make this movie. Can you do it for cheaper, cheaper, cheaper? And at that point, Aiden Quinn was supposed to play Christ. And, you know, Last Temptation, uh, the movie, which eventually was made, like the book by Nikos Katzenzakis, um, is not intended to be blasphemous, even though many have perceived it that way. It's, it's Scorsese, a devout Catholic most of his life. He wanted to make a movie that asked these very provocative and, and necessary questions about the nature of God being both man, both God. And uh, and basically, you know, the movie just came apart on him. He'd worked on it for so long. Uh, Robert De Niro, his friend and frequent collaborator, even said, hey, like, if you need my name, if you need me to be in this movie, I'll be in this movie, even though I don't really want to be in The Last Temptation of Christ. I'll do it if it helps the movie get made. It wound up being all for nothing. Um, the film just didn't happen. So Scorsese, basically, he tried to get another movie going, and it wound up being The King of Comedy. And The King of Comedy, you know, it's a it's a very dark drama with Robert De Niro and uh, Jerry Lewis. And now it's a cult film. Now it's considered one of the great Scorsese films. But when it came out, I mean, it was a huge, embarrassing bomb. A lot of people hated it, didn't get it. So this was a film that Scorsese was like, I'm really interested in doing this. And he came to find out that Tim Burton was going to make it his film debut. After Bur Hours? Yeah, Burton had never made a movie before. And Burton was circling the project. Uh, David Geffen was uh, the producer. And apparently what happened, it's so cool. Apparently what happened was uh, Burton got, w got wind of this. So Burton went to Scorsese and he's like, I love you. So yeah, man, here, take the script. I'll do something else. And Burton went, went and made Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Very cool. 
because uh, Burton's like, okay, like, like Scorsese is the guy for this. So Scorsese made this film. It's a little movie. Um, it was very much as in his words, it was like going back to film school, doing this movie that's like there's – you know, it's it's a lot of scenes of people in rooms talking, um, comp- complicated in some ways, but like, you know, really like a student film. And he had the time of his life making the movie. And it was not a huge box office hit, but it, it was – perceived at the time as a return to form um it's one of my favorite films that's i'll say it's my number two favorite martin scorsese film that's funny because i've never heard you talk about it (laughs) do you know what my number one favorite martin scorsese film is what silence oh yeah we've talked about that on this this program that was like back uh one of our number three favorite scorsese film cape fear Oh, yeah. I do love Cape Fear. He's known for his mobster movies, but I swear, like, Scorsese is such a versatile filmmaker. I'm always throwing out, you know, everything from Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, The Age of Innocence, Kun Dun. My favorite gangster film of his is Casino. Um, <laughs> there's so many films. The Aviator. He's made great films that have no gangsters in them. He's a he's a brilliant filmmaker. His versatility is off the charts. And here he is making this little dark comedy um yeah i love this movie all right well let's get into it because this movie i (laughs) did not know what to expect i think i went into this one totally blind and it kind of is one of those takes place in like 12 hours kind of films Mm -hmm. so we meet paul hackett played by griffin dunn and he's just a computer data entry worker in the in a company it's like boring job and he's just I feel like, bad for people who do this in real life because this is never depicted as a good job. You know what I mean? Even I mean maybe the most glamorous depiction of this is like Neo in the Matrix. But beyond, I mean they all they all work at cubicles. Their life sucks. The job sucks. You, do these guys ever sit a cubicle like God, it's like that movie After Hours? Oh, I hate this. No, they probably just think of Office Space. Yeah, yeah. Office Office Space romanticizes this position. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe. So. um he goes home and um, actually he goes out to a local cafe in New York. Well, we don't want to talk about his opening scene where he's oh, he's giving job training to Bronson Bronson Pinchot. Yes, Balky. Before he played Balky on Perfect Strangers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this was a year after his scene-stealing bit in Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Celebrity cameo, first one. <laughs> okay, so he goes to a local cafe and here he meets Marcy. Played by the wonderful Rosanna Arquette. And this is just kind of like a like most of the conversations in this film, just a little bit quirky. Yeah, they're talking about Henry Miller because he's reading Henry Miller, and uh, yeah, so they have a conversation about that, and it's it's kind of this wonderful like okay, you know, this attractive woman in this in this in this diner by herself. They're having a conversation about literature. They're kind of hitting it off, um, but as the conversation goes on, it, it's not the first time he realizes that she just. She doesn't really do small talk. Um, what she talks about tends to be uh, devastating. <laughs> she she basically has an inability to like just you know have like kind of cutesy conversations. Um, she talks about really heavy-handed things and tragic things that happened to her, and this mm-hmm. is kind of the start of that. So then he she's basically like, "Hey, I you know I'm I'm going to my." friend's house tonight and she's an artist and she sells <laughs> plaster of paris paperweights that resemble cream cheese bagels yeah <laughs> i mean even the first time i heard that i'm like oh i want to see that too that sounds great 
Thank you, movie. It's so, it's such a weird detail. It's a great detail. I love that. Yeah. And so she, <clears throat> she basically gives him the number and like, yeah, if you want to buy one, if you want to buy one of these paperweights, like give my friend a call. <laughs> Everything is just a little off for Paul because in, in addition to his job sucking, he initially doesn't have the proper means of writing down her number. This is the 80s. If someone tells you their phone number and you forget it, you're never going to see that person ever again. There's no social media, nothing. This is it. So you kind of share his, his – it's a brief moment of desperation. You know, He goes to the cashier and asks for, I think, a pencil and he writes it down in his book. Um but yeah, I love that detail because it's like, yeah, I, I, I remember this, that aspect of that decade. You know, yeah. you, if someone tells you your number, you write that thing down immediately. You tattoo I, it on your arm. I thought we had better memories back then than we Oh, I now. still remember the number of my childhood home. Do you? Yeah, me yeah. too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to uh, tell you right now. Every, everybody, <laughs> let's call it. <laughs> um, okay, so later that night, he calls the number um, <laughs> under the pretense of buying one of these bagel and cream cheese paperweights. And um, Marcy's like, yeah, why don't you come over? You know, why don't you come over in a little bit and gives them the address. I mean, it's basically going to be like one in the morning when he does this. So, you know, he's definitely going, this is like a 1985 booty call. Absolutely. And it's Roseanne Arquette who's dazzling. So I get it. I mean, I've seen where he works. So, yeah, this definitely sounds more exciting than showing Bronson Pinchot how to use the cursor. So, yeah. Yeah. So, he takes a cab to the apartment and the windows are open in the back and he takes this $20 bill. And I'm not sure exactly what he was trying to do, like why he didn't leave it in his pocket. But he tries to put it in this little like... Slot for the taxi cab driver. Yeah, and it just flies out the window. Yeah, like, and, the, and it, not only is the the film sped up a little bit, but it, the indication is that this is like I mean, he's this is the first of many moments where it's like nothing is working out for this guy at all. This taxi cab drive is is it's like an ascension into hell, basically. Mm-hmm. Okay, hold on. I'm gonna find out what. $20 is back then. Oh, no. You're doing this again. Some movie math. <laughs> it's like $280. Oh, the value of $20 in 1985? Yeah. Well, I mean, no question. I mean, it, 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 you know, it could go a lot further than it does today. You go you go to McDonald's with $20, you could probably buy dinner for everyone in there. I mean, that's, that's crazy. So that's like a ton of money just flying out the window. Yes, literally. Yeah. So... He tells the the cab driver, and the cab driver is just like, just leaves. He's kind of like, F you. Yes. <laughs> so now um, he has like 75 cents in his pocket. That's all he has. And he goes up to the apartment, and he this is where he meets Kiki. Played by Linda Fiorentino. Who supposedly makes these <laughs> plaster of Paris paperweights resembling cream cheese bagels. And she's like... Just kind of dressed in like a bra and like mini skirt and has like just art stuff like all over her hands. And mm-hmm. she's putting together some kind yeah, of this plaster statue. Yeah. That looks like a screaming man. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And Paul Hackett makes a reference to Munch's The Scream and does not impress Linda Fiorentino at all. She's very unimpressed. Yeah. And yeah. But at one point, I don't know where Marcy is. Did she like step out for a minute? Um, I love the contrast because, you know, Paul is a very earnest character. Over the course of the night, we we see how 
His problem is that he's very nice, but he's also very curious. And it just, it does, it's not always a good mixture when, for example, you're in the presence of Kiki, who is not nice and, and actually quite annoyed with him. Um, yeah, it's the first of many times it happens over the course of the evening. But at some point, he ends up giving her a massage. Yes, he does. Yeah. And because she, they're waiting for they're waiting for Rosanna Arquette so long that it's yeah. like, well, I might as well just give you a massage, which he does. Yeah. And, and she falls fast asleep. Yeah, she just totally falls asleep. I think massage. Paul's thinking maybe Kiki booty call. If it doesn't work out with Marcy, like maybe Marcy like climbed out the window and she's left him there, you know. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. So anyways, like they go, Marcy comes home and they go into her room and I don't know, it gets kind of weird. Oh, I'd say so. Yeah. I mean, look, so <laughs> this is when I knew the movie really wasn't working for you because I had to stifle a lot of my laughter and I'm like, oh no, <laughs> you are not taking this movie at all because <laughs> there's a shot in it that always makes me laugh and I'm like, I can't laugh right now because you're going to think you married a monster. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so Roseanne Arquette is on the bed with Paul and the conversation turns to a time that she was molested. And again, like, it's not the content of the conversation. What's funny is she can only tell him these things. No small talk. Everything that she tells him is about life tragedy. So she's talking about this time where she was sexually abused. And it's a very long, drawn-out story. What's funny about it is his reaction and the fact that it just it just doesn't end. And the thing that always just makes me laugh out loud She's telling this story about when she was abused, and she kind of looks in the opposite direction. She's like, and that's where he climbed through the window. And the camera, like, pans quickly over the window, like, there's where it happened. <laughs> it always makes me laugh, but you clearly weren't digging this movie. I'm like, if I laugh right now, I don't know. We, I think you'd be really upset. Uh, so I know. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, oh, man, this, this may not have been the best idea. <laughs> Um, well, there's a weird thing where Kiki is like talking about how she's so glad she doesn't have like burns all over her body. Yeah. And make makes Paul think that Marcy may be like disfigured or something yeah. in some weird way. And then after her stories, you know, I mean, okay, she's talking <laughs> about a time she was like assaulted, basically, right. like. Oh, that's really going to put someone in the mood. I mean, he's like, get me out of here. And again, to be clear, listeners, like there's nothing funny about what she's saying. The dark humor comes from this guy who, you know, again, like he's not a, like an 80s sleazy character. There's a way to play him that way. Griffin Dunn is not playing him. This guy is curious. He's lonely. He's bored. He's nice. He was going to spend the night reading Henry Miller alone in a diner. And he actually met a girl who's not only very attractive, but he could actually talk to. So like you do get the sense like he's in it for the conversation. If, if that's all it is, it's not like one of these things like what well, she has to put out. No, like he'll, he'll, he'll do this. But this has become like really awful <laughs> because he's not a therapist and she's pouring her guts out to him. And, you know, it, it's just he feels like the walls are kind of closing in on him. Yeah. So he like breaks out of the of her room and the apartment and tries to go home by the subway. But um, he doesn't have enough money. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, it's a great bit where yeah. it's kind of, you know, again, like a lot of things happen over the course of the night where it's, it's kind of challenging him. It's like, is he going to continue to be nice, kind of a conformist, one of these guys who doesn't break the rules? Or is he going to basically, you know, turn to survivalist mode? And so he yeah, he basically apologizes to the cop who's like, what are you doing? And he, he basically gets laughed out of the subway station. By the way, before we go any further, what does this movie remind you of? I don't know. Eyes Wide Shut. Oh. Yeah. It's one of the reasons I like it so much. And when there, and the few critics, when High Spot Check came out, mostly it was like, there's not enough nudity or sex. This movie's supposed to be dirty. And it's not. Or it's too long and boring. The people who were smart and liked Eyes Wide Shut said, you know, this is actually kind of like a hornier after hours. I'm like, yes, yes. <laughs> because for one thing, the, one of the things I love about After Hours, it gets something that is true everywhere, not just New York. Places are different at night, especially a city. There are parts of cities that, you know, seemingly are just like, oh, that's that that's that nice little diner. That's that really like quaint little cute neighborhood. Let's go there. They're they're different at night. The world just seems like a different place at night. And you and you take places that are already eccentric and weird and full of weirdos, and it just becomes a whole other world. So I love that aspect of this movie because it's about these diners that are open all night and the strange people that go to diners in the middle of the night, you know, who have who are having like, you know, a full-fledged meal at three in the morning or going to a rock concert that lasts until the sun comes up. I mean, that's a whole kind of vampiric existence. If anybody's curious, we did talk about Eyes Wide Shut on February 18th, 2022. So check out that episode. Because if this conversation isn't scintillating enough, well... <laughs> <laughs> Way do you hear about us talk about a two and a half hour Stanley Kubrick film? Yeah, no, that was a good one. That was um, a good one, yeah. Okay, so he can't, he's like pleading with the subway guy, like, can you just like give me some extra money? Because like at midnight, the price went up and he just didn't have enough. By what, like a, like 10 cents or something? Something like that, yeah. It was something so <clears throat> small. Yeah. And then he's like, fine, I'm just going to jump the turnstile. <laughs> And then the cops, you know, he's like, oh, sorry, sorry. And he just like runs out. So at some point it starts raining. Um, so he goes to a bar, this like sad. <laughs> that is that is the only word for this bar. bar. It's Yeah, absolutely. And this is where he meets Julie, the waitress. And John Hurd, the bartender. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, he he kind of like starts talking to the bartender and kind of get, gets him on his side. And he's like, I'll. Yeah, I'll give you some money to get home, but he can't open his cash register. Yeah. It's like he he needs the key, so he's going to tell Paul. It's like the world is really turning against Paul because yeah. this should have been the end of the film. Yeah. Gives him the keys. So yeah, it gives him a little bit of money, just a nice gesture, and that's it. Yeah, like a, he, a dollar he could have Paul made gets home. home and he's like... Oh, okay, wow, that was weird. Yeah, that yeah, but it's like in little in ways both very small and massive. It's like everything on planet Earth is just turning against Paul. Yeah. So he he goes up to um, Tom's apartment, and he also has learned that there's been a string of burglaries in this neighborhood. So he um, he goes to Tom's place to to get the. Uh, register key and then he spots the burglars and <laughs> their, their names are neil and pepe it's cheech and chong ladies and gentlemen yeah this is your first cheech and chong film isn't it uh i don't know maybe yes this is your <laughs> if that's your answer then yes this is your first cheech and chong movie <laughs> 
So they look like they've stolen one of Kiki's man sculptures that she made out of plaster of Paris. Yeah. And um, he's like, hey, you know, and they they drop it. They <laughs> it gets totally mostly broken. shattered. Yeah. yeah. So and they take off. And this is the thing I like as they take off. The dialogue is indicating that they weren't actually stealing it. They actually purchased they actually it, le- bought it legitimate from her, which is hilarious <laughs> that these guys would want this art. But, you know, the movie is making fun of the Soho art world of the 80s. Another movie that does this that I love that's out of print is Tom Schiller's Nothing Lasts Forever, a brilliant film with Zach Galligan, Bill Murray. Everybody who's a film fan needs to seek that film out. It's brilliant. Uh, it needs to get released. But anyway, yeah, this is, this is one of those movies that was making fun of the Soho art world at this time. And I think this is – it's an angle that I think really works because there's something so amazing and so so ridiculous about the art in this movie. Yeah, and instead of just being like, oh my gosh, okay, it broke, I'm going to go back to the bar. No, he takes the sculpture. He's a good Samaritan. He's a good to guy. Kiki. He's a nice guy. <laughs> Carries it up a flight of stairs. And because it's in the position that is, I mean, it looks like the statue is like getting a piggyback ride off of him. Yes. Yeah. And so he goes back to the apartment and... Kiki's like, oh, you really should apologize for leaving Marcy. (laughs) And so he goes in there to talk to her and she's killed herself. Like, wait, what? Yeah. Did she kill herself because he left? Uh, No, I think it was always going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I I think. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I mean, from her monologues, I would assume that, you know, I think he was like the last person to to listen to her testimony frankly mm. yeah i think she was probably probably planning it over the course of the night mm. yeah it's so sad it's very sad and and i gotta say Rosanna arquette does dead really well there's some shots where she her eyes are open and, and she's looking lifelessly away from the camera not easy to do she does it really well yeah her okay. performance is excellent but I'm, i gotta point this out it's like it's it's hard to do especially when the camera's on you for a long time even janet lee famously couldn't do it in the psycho you can actually see her her throat retract at one point but anyway okay but this is like the one part where you're like paul's being a creepy creep because he does... He wants to see if she has got that scar. Yeah, if she yeah. has scars. And he finds out she doesn't have anything. I'm not saying it's appropriate, but I was also curious too. <laughs> oh I'm not saying I would have done it if I was in his shoes, but I was like, thank you. I, let's, you know, I was kind of wondering too. <laughs> what? Oh, but he's like looking at her naked dead body like not he was not wasn't undressing her he's just like you know and he finds a telltale tattoo yeah which is it winds up being an important detail so see it's good that he did this oh my god no it's not i'm kidding it's kind of weird okay it's, it, everything is weird but, but before he found that out he sees kiki with her like snm like, played by will Patton, boyfriend yeah. yeah and like she's like tied up and they're just who knows what they were gonna do before he walked in but he goes. That's a whole other movie. He goes out to talk to Kiki, and she's like, "Oh, we went to, you know, Club Berlin. Come, come, meet up with us if you want." <laughs> so, so, like, they had no idea that Marcy just like offed herself right in the back is, room. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like, I think you know, to put it one way, I mean, I think her running into Paul was probably maybe the best thing that happened to her that night. She's probably been overcome with depression and sadness. I mean, Aww. you know, no, it, it, it is tragic and sad. What's hilarious, and again, I didn't dare laugh at this out loud because I'm like, <laughs> I don't want you to think I'm so terrible. Um, he leaves, He Paul very carefully leaves signs around the apartment that say dead body with an arrow pointing <laughs> okay, to her picture. <laughs> again, I'm like, I can't laugh at this because you're not going to want to remain married to the film critic after this. 
Okay. <laughs> I it was funny. Okay. <laughs> to put your mind at ease, I am the one who watched, um, what movie was it that I laughed at with um, Christian Bale? American Psycho. Yes. Yeah, when yeah. we watched American Psycho together, I mean, I was cackling and you were like, wait, this movie's funny? <laughs> when you and I first started dating, you told me Christian Bale was your favorite actor. And I'm like, you haven't seen American Psycho? Interesting. So I was kind of, kind of, I don't know if I want to show that to you, but you, you were insistent. I mean, you, you knew his work up to that point. He had just been cast as Batman. The new Batman movie hadn't come out. So I'm like, you really should see this. He's incredible in this. But I warned you. I said like, look, this is a shocking film. I was kind of horrified by it. I knew the book really well, and you were laughing through most of the film. I'm like, that was, you know, and I've said this, like, and I mean this complimentary. Like, I don't think I realized how funny that movie was until I watched it with you. And the fact that it was directed by a woman, adapted by a woman, says so much. The movie has a lot to say. It's not just making fun of a yuppie. It's making fun of men in general, that movie. And I did not realize it the first couple times I saw it until I watched it with you. Yeah, so, I mean, I can see why this movie is similar in that sense. Um, yeah, it's draw. Like it doesn't. Yeah. You're watching a comedy. I don't think the movie really tips his hat. And that's what, you know. Scorsese doesn't really make comedies. He makes movies about people who are funny and they express themselves comically. Famously, Pesci and, and Goodfellas and other things. But yeah, it's a. Uh, you know, he doesn't do comedy from like a broad, you know, self-knowing perspective. It's just like the characters are funny, and that's where the the humor comes from. Okay, so but, again, poor Paul. So he. He's like, oh, yeah, I got to go back to the bar. But now Tom's bar is locked and there's a sign that says we'll be back in half an hour. So uh, Paul meets Julie, the waitress, again on the street. Yes, Terry Gar. Mm -hmm. And she invites him up to her apartment. And then she gets real strange. <laughs> like at this point should be no surprise there are no there are no normal people in this movie yeah yeah but it's also new york at night so of course there's no no normal people in new york city yeah she's got like an old 1950s flow the waitress hairstyle yeah like a beehive yeah yeah forgive me yeah mm -hmm. that's what they're called mm -hmm. and yeah she's in his apartment and it's one of these things like it's two grown-ups who are alone in an apartment together they're attractive so she's kind of like like hey you you on and he's like no He's yeah. kind of baffled by her sudden interest in him. Oh, I'm sorry I was rude before. I really am. Okay, no more crying, please. What a night. Hey, Paul. Hmm? Do you like my hairdo? Yes. Yes, I do. Why don't you touch it? I don't want to mess it up. You won't. I, you want me to? Yeah. Okay. That's him. Oh, I hear him. I hear him. I hear him. No, no, it's okay. Oh, thank God. He's there. He's there. I can go home. I can go home. Excuse me. Oh. What's the matter? Oh. Well, nothing. I, I just... You know, I really got the feeling that... That you kind of like me now. I mean, you're not going to leave now. Not after I brought you in out of the rain, are you? All right. All right. I'm gonna, here's what I'll do. I'll 
I'm gonna go to the bar, give your boss back his keys, then I'm gonna get my keys, and then I'll be back, okay? Should take all of two minutes. Yeah, sure. Julie, two minutes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, he's like... Understandably. Yeah, he's like, do you know what kind of night I've had? And doesn't she draw a picture of him or she something? She does, yeah. Yeah, it's very strange. And it's good. It's a good picture. So then he finally returns to Tom's bar, only for Tom to get a call informing him of the death of his girlfriend, who is Marcy. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and, you know, the movie tips it off because Marcy had a skull tattoo. And his key chain has a has a skull on it. So I think, yeah, that was the early indication of, oh, they're they're connected. Yeah. It's this little neighborhood where everybody's connected to each other. Not completely believable because New York is so vast. I mean I mean, you know, a different neighborhood is like a different planet in New York, especially in, in, in a neighborhood like this, but okay, fine. Yeah, so the it's whole, like guys watch chat in that way, they're all connected. The whole time um Paul's talking to Tom, I mean there's these like two guys like S&M gear, like totally making out at the bar. And it's just like, just everything in the movie, you're like, okay. This is when, <laughs> well, you know, this is that that age when New York had, you know, Studio 54, bathhouses. Yeah, yeah, different than it is now. Yeah. Everyone's just yeah, out and about. Years. Yeah. Yeah. So. Garbage on the streets. This is the Nighthawks years oh, in New York. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is the you know, New York when, you know. I dig the guys in S and M gear because they wound up being very helpful uh, when he comes back in the bars talking to <laughs> one of my favorite things because because they're listening to this conversation between Paul and Tom the bartender and <laughs> and Paul's like I'm so sorry about your girlfriend and one of the S and M guys goes like it's okay man it's not, it's not like it's your fault and it is. <laughs> Oh my gosh, poor Paul. Okay. All right, so now he is in search of Kiki, and I guess Horst is the name of her S&M buddy. <laughs> I love this movie has designated S&M buddies. Excellent. Yeah. So to inform them of Marcy's suicide, yes. so he goes to Club Berlin, and there's a group of punks that <laughs> attempt to shave his head into a mohawk. It's that kind like, of movie. He's, yeah. he's such a yuppie that the guy... You know, the bounce bar bouncer, yeah, bouncer, like will not let him in. And he's kind of like, it's Mohawk night. Like you can't come in here. You don't even have a Mohawk. All right. So, yeah. So there's an attempt to get his head shaved. He manages to mostly escape that. Yeah. There's a patch of his uh, hair that gets shaved off. But for the most part, he survives Mohawk night at, at Club Berlin. Yeah. yeah. So then Paul meets an ice cream Vendor. Truck driver named Gail. <laughs> Played by Catherine O'Hara. Yeah. Fresh off of like, Second City TV. You see her and you're like, oh, okay, maybe like finally a normal person, but no. Well, the fact that it's played by Catherine O'Hara should have tipped us off. It should have. This but... is uh, about six years before she became most famous cinematically for looking right into the camera and going, Kevin! <laughs> and her Home Alone husband is in this too. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's funny. So... He goes back to her place and I don't know, they're hanging out. And then she like decides that she's just annoying because she lets him use the phone. Like finally a helpful character, finally someone who's going to like get this poor guy home. And she keeps screwing with him whenever he answers the number. Manhattan, please. Could I have the number of a Peter Potzik? Uh, That's P-A-T-Z-A-K. Need a pencil? No. On Mulberry Street. 
Thank you. Five, eight, one, nine, six, one, two. <laughs> that was funny. That was funny. Potzik, please. P A T Z A K on Mulberry Street, Manhattan. Five, eight, six, two. Don't. Nine, Don't. three, eight, zero. Oh, <laughs> now I have forgotten the number. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Are you all right? And she thinks it's really funny. I mean, there's something very universally recognizable about this. Like, wow, you're, she's one of those annoying people. Yeah, like he. So he calls information to get a phone number. And then he's trying to remember the number. And then when he hangs up to dial it, she's like, seven, eight, one, four, five. Like the most annoying little sister you've ever had. Sure. And she does this multiple times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's, she's awful. Um, it helps that Catherine O'Hara is playing this role. And, and so she's she, just like cackling. She, like. O'Hara makes anyone instantly less loathsome because she's playing it. But yeah, this character's awful. <laughs> just, <laughs> oh my gosh. It's like this guy can't cut a break. There are no nice people in New York. Yeah. Okay. So she thinks that he's the burglar plaguing the neighborhood. Yes. And so she has like a mob of local residents <laughs> trying to like pursue him yeah and a great visual is that her ice cream truck complete with little ice cream jingles the mr softy truck. Are, are searching for the him like basically instead of like you know uh, flames and pitchforks it's like you know mr softy jingles and a bunch of people like looking around for paul yeah it's great it's uh, such a weird visual yeah so paul discovers that as payback for rejecting julie they <laughs> They use an image of him in a wanted poster that names him as the burglar. Yeah, because, this is, and this is the picture that Terry Gard drew. Yeah, him. because she li- okay, she lives right above like a printer. Right. Like, and she's like, I can make as many copies as I want. That winds up being a very important detail. Yeah. <laughs> then you're like, oh my gosh, she just printed like a hundred of these posters. With just covered her neighborhood. With yeah. It. yeah. And so he's walking around, just like ripping them all off. Oh my gosh, this poor guy. Okay, so he ultimately goes back to Club Berlin as it's about to close for the night. And there's like, what, one bartender and then like one random woman named June who's just sitting there. Yes, all by herself. Yeah, and so the bartender's like, yeah, you can hang out here. Um, But doesn't he say something about June? Like... She's here every she's night. She's always here. Oh, yeah. She's here By every herself night. every night. Yes. Yeah. So. No red flag. Okay. She seems nice. <laughs> so, Works for me. <laughs> <laughs> so Paul uses his last quarter to play a song in the jukebox. And him and June dance. So then Paul explains that he's being pursued and... Because you can see that the mob is trying to get into the bar. I mean, th- these people are like, it's crazy. They're nuts. They're going nuts. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the, the mob comes into the bar looking for him. And Paul briefly explains his situation to June. 
and June encases him in the same plaster paper art project that he saw Kiki doing. Yeah, hours because early. she like lives underneath this bar. Mm-hmm. And so they go downstairs and she's got all her creepy plaster of Paris things, right? Yes. Oh wait. Okay, I just wanted to mention, doesn't one of these women have one of these bagel and cream cheese paperweights? Yes, it does it does manifest. It does show itself. Yeah. Is point. it Julie? I believe so. The one who has the printer. Yes, that's right. That's yeah, right. Is it, yeah, and she's like, "Oh, look at this!" And you're like, "Oh my gosh, they actually do exist." This yes, is and, like the, a and real Paul thing. proceeds to destroy it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> By the way, I mean, if you think that's ridiculous, I mean, this is the exact same decade as you know uh, burger phones. This is back when everybody had burger phones. Oh my gosh, I wanted one things? of those so bad. I mean, they look they look cute on '80s sitcoms, but you look at them now, and it's like people had serious conversations on those things. Well, like can you imagine? Like, girls did. Well, yeah, but I mean, some houses they actually had them in the living room. People would answer the phone, and be like, "She died." You wait. When's the funeral? They're talking into a burger phone. <laughs> okay, did you actually see someone yes. have a burger phone as yes. their main phone? Yes, in the living room or no. like in the kitchen. Yes, Stop. a burger phone. <laughs> They're talking into the burger phone. <laughs> oh, man. Did he make bail? Hold on. Sorry. I, I, I'm going to put the burger phone on my shoulder. Hold on. Let me write it down. When's the, when's the trial date? So I'm, I'm talking on the burger phone right now. I'm sorry. I'm talking to the cops. Just hold on. I got the burger phone. Sorry. The wires are tangling on my legs. I got the burger phone. Hold on. Okay. <laughs> people um, used to have it. Yeah, so the it 80s. wasn't just teenage girls. No. They, People had these ta- – I've seen these tacky burger phones and some of them actually had glowing neon on the buns. <laughs> <laughs> this is the age of Teddy Ruxpin. You know, for all the advances in technology, the 80s had some stupid tchotchkes and you could find them at, at you know, thrift stores I everywhere. Know. I wanted one of those burger phones so bad. No, you can still get one. I, um, no, they'd probably, get- probably be like $200 now. <laughs> <laughs> eh, you go to the right, you know, you go to the right thrift store. You know, they got like one where only one bun is is still working. Oh my gosh! The other one doesn't have any neon on it. No, I'm gonna get a burger phone. That's okay, settled. so okay, so Paul is in June's like weird plaster of Paris art covered apartment. I'm like, what is it with all of these these artists? And they all have these strips of newspaper and glue, and they're just like making these random... It's like they all discovered this at the same time. Paper mache! Alright! I know! It's so strange. (laughs) Yeah. So she's like, uh, let's put you, let's make you a sculpture. Yeah. And so when the mob breaks into the bar... They also break into June's apartment. Yes. I mean, these people are nuts. And so he's just stuck in there. And after the mob leaves, he's like, okay, you can get me out now. And she's like, no. <laughs> I think she realized, this is my masterpiece. Like, I've just been waiting the- for someone to come down to my basement. This is so serial killer like oh, yeah. stuff. Oh, it's great. Like, June is crazy. So June may be the biggest monster he's met that evening. Yeah. And he's hung out with Catherine O'Hara in her in her frosty truck. Yeah, this is this he, is bad. He's hung out with artists, a suicidal person, like tons of S and M people. Mm-hmm. And this like old lady And Cheech and Sean. Yeah. But this is, lady is, is the one. Yeah, she's like you never would have known it. See? We judged everyone by their appearances earlier in the film, and then the one that we're like, oh, she seems sweet. Total. She ends up being the craziest. June is like the reverse of Paul. She's sad, lonely, by herself in a diner in the middle of the night. Oh, man. Yeah. 
Yeah, but Paul wouldn't do this kind of serial killer stuff. I think enough nights like this, Paul would become June. Oh, man. Yeah. That's depressing. Well, now he becomes a part of her uh, her furniture. It just became really dark. Oh, it's, she it, becomes part It's of the after party. hours. Yeah, it becomes dark. Yeah, so oh. so what happens is yeah, he's stuck. June leaves, and we basically get these shots of... Because all we can see are his eyes. He's got some breathing holes, but basically Paul is stuck inside of this statue. And... I mean, it's kind of funny, but really it's horrifying. No, it's horrifying because I was like, oh my gosh, this is how it ends. He's just going to like emaciate inside of this thing and become and just like die in there. And she's just going to have like this living, breathing, rotting sculpture at some point. I like that ending. Really? No. Well, anyway, so. Okay. Neil and Pepe. Neil and Pepe. Jason Chong saved this movie. They break into the Club Berlin and steal Paul. Thinking that he's the sculpture that they had dropped on the street earlier Mm -hmm. and put him back in their van. And then as the van speeds away, they take a sharp turn. The van door opens and Paul just like flies out and the plaster of Paris breaks. And when you know it, he fell out right in front of his job. Yep. So he gets up, dusts himself off. He's covered in white, but he's basically still fine. I mean, it's and it's like... And it's just as the door opens up. 7 a.m. It's time to get to work. So he just walks upstairs and starts his day all over again. Yeah. (laughs) Like, what a surreal evening. I would be like, you know what? I'm just going to call in sick. I'm not going in there. Well, you know, it's 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 eyes wide shut. It's this idea of if you are a kind person, if you are a generous person, or if you're generally someone who stays out of trouble, does not like conflict, if you're suddenly in an environment where everyone is a threat and you are out of your element and you don't have the money or the understanding or the connections to get out of it, you're going to be hunted at some point. You know, and that's that's what happens to Cruz in that film. That's what happens to Dunn in this film. So the fact that they survive at the end, it really is just a, a matter of random circumstances, as random as the circumstances that they find themselves in. So it's just like how random luck, you know, makes it a full circle journey in both mm-hmm. cases. Yeah. Yeah. The original ending of this film, which they did not shop, but they storyboarded, and I've seen the storyboards. June is a serial killer? No. Oh. The, the mob is trying to find Paul. So June says, I have an idea. So Paul climbs inside of her, and she <laughs> walks to the Lincoln Tunnel, gives birth to him, <laughs> and then the movie ends. <laughs> <laughs> which is like, What? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I still want to see that ending because it's so crazy. I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I mean, maybe you would come across as, I don't know, misogynist. But not rooted in no. reality? Yeah, yeah, no, no, not far-fetched at all. No, I don't know. Um. Because, okay, because everything that happens in this movie, like, okay, it's so far-fetched, but it could happen. You know yeah, I mean? sure, sure. Well, I mean, it, it's a, it's it's emotional honesty because yeah. you know many have said like you know it's very Kafka. It's very much this paranoia, this idea that everyone is out to get me. The world isn't working. The world is working against me. Um, I'm being accused of things I did not do. I'm being hunted for things that I do not deserve to be hunted for. You know, it's like it's it's mob mentality. You know, going after an innocent man, and and it is true. Like the movie is probably more of a thriller or like a horror film really than it is than it's just a general comedy, which is why I'm sure it rubs certain people the wrong way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah yeah well and i i guess i skipped over there's one scene where he goes to some guy's house 
when he like tells him the whole story. Yes, yes, yes. And that was the that was also the thing they used in the trailer. That monologue. It's a funny monologue where he yeah, explains to a guy everything that happens beat by beat. Um, so why does he go to that guy's house? I can't remember. Like the <laughs> I can't remember at the, the moment. The description I was reading was the guy thought he wanted to have like a sexual encounter. Um, but I'm thinking, Paul's thinking, he just wanted to, like, get off the street because of this mob, maybe? You know, to, to give Mr. Scorsese some credit about this, I mean, this was a time when if you were dealing with a movie that was showing, uh, you know, depicting um, either underground or... Kinky uh, things? Well, basically, just just, just the, 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 the gay club scene of the 80s. We're mm-hmm. talking about police academy, like total mockery, mm-hmm. just like total, you know. You know, so like I like that Scorsese is like, look, this is this is a part of it. This is this is what it's like. This is what you're, you know, see. And I'm sure like there's an, obviously an element of caricature. I don't know that two guys in full S&M gear would go into John Hurd's bar and start making out. I don't know how, how real that is. But the well, fact that – The only part that felt really mawkish was like, give him a mohawk. <laughs> right. But beyond, what I'm saying is Scorsese is not making fun of anybody no. in this movie. They're not, you know, they're, they're really I, – I didn't see any caricatures in this film. You made the point that – that the film has a distrust of women. Oh. It's valid. It's totally valid. I was like, why are all the women so crazy? It's Yeah, that's a valid question. And especially, again, like talking about the original ending of the film, it's like, okay, maybe this is a guy, you know, it was, um, let's see, the screenwriters. Uh, let's see, let me pull that up. Well, I wasn't saying the movie was misogynist. I'm not saying it's misogynist, but I mean, Joseph Minion, Joe Frank are credited writers. You do get the feeling like maybe someone broke up, had a bad breakup, and just wrote this screenplay right after. Yeah. Because every woman is crazy. It's it's one of these things where, you know, sometimes when you meet people, and whether it's a date or a friendship or at a party, and you talk to them for five minutes, you go, oh, this person's crazy. I need to, like, slowly (laughs) back out of the room and get out of here. Um, I mean, that's what happens with every person. Even John Hurt's character. Every character in this thing is unhinged and unreliable. Maybe the nicest person in the movie, um, in the first diner that Paul goes to, and when he meets uh, Roseanne Arquette, the the guy who runs it, it, it's the wonderful Dick Miller, character actor. And, And Dick Miller has the line that that gives the movie its title. He says, you know, it's hey man, different rules apply. It's after hours. Well, what's funny about that guy is Paul goes in there and he's he needs to use the bathroom and he's like, customers only. He's like, okay, I'll order something. So he goes to the bathroom and then That's a different guy, but yeah, yeah. No, no, it's the same guy. Because he goes No, in- no, the the diner at the beginning of the movie where he meets Roseanne Arquette for the first time. This is later in the movie. Where he's on the hunt from the mob. I think it's the same diner. I think it's a different diner. Oh, okay. Pretty sure. All right. Well, anyways, he goes into a different diner then. And he um, <laughs> he says, like, you know, you have to order if you want to use the bathroom. And so he's like, all right, burger and fries. And then he ends up, like, leaving because I think the mob's after him. And then he comes back for some reason and the guy has his food ready he's like here you go and he has like no money it's like oh no how are you gonna pay for this it's a funny moment because it's like oh you're back i've been waiting for you no one has come in here so yeah here's the food you ordered yeah absolutely (laughs) yeah it's good stuff scorsese you know the movie again was a bit of a rebound for him he followed it up with at the time the biggest commercial success of his career which was the color of money um, and the success of The Color of Money, the sequel to The Hustler with Tom Cruise and Paul Newman, which also won an Academy Award, it, it gave uh, Scorsese the you know creative you know the the creative power and and you know also the you know the the cachet 
to make his dream project. So in 1988, he finally got to make The Last Temptation of Christ. And for that film, he was rewarded with mostly protests. Lots and lots of protests and angry people. Um, I don't know. You know, it's funny. Like, I, I, I wonder to this day if he feels like it was worth the trouble because, um, man, that film got pummeled uh, by, mostly by people who had never seen it. I like the film for the record. Um, but, yeah, like this was this in-between movie. Like, the After Hours, many people have said, like, you know, Paul Hackett running through the streets and looking up at heaven going, what do you want from me? And <laughs> freak people said, like, this is probably exactly what Martin Scorsese was going through finding Last Temptation of Christ, like just getting every plug pulled out of it until it completely flatlined and here's this guy who's an artist and suddenly a studio is going like we're not going to let you make this movie no matter how hard you try just as paul's desperately trying to get out of new york or rather out of soho yeah yeah well okay but go back to i don't think the men are as crazy in this movie as the women uh no i think the men are nuts um (laughs) because i mean let's let's talk about the men so cheech and chong nuts okay john hurd crazy um horst Horse, uh, <laughs> homicidal. Um, yeah, the men are nuts. They're all nuts. No, but like, there's the nice. There, and who's sympathetic in this movie? The the Club Berlin um, bartender. He's decent. He's like, yeah, you can come in here and hang out with Crazy June. Okay. Yeah. One dude. Got it. Yeah. Okay. He like helps him like escape. Okay, basically. him and Dick Miller. All right, the two. All right. So there so, are a few like I would say a couple guys. Even the one he tells his story to in his. But apartment. the guy who lets him in, it might maybe June's like the first guy you see. You tell him to come in here, <laughs> and you tell him that I'm nice and that I sit here every night and no one ever talks to me, so that when I have him alone. I'll make him my latest art project. <laughs> you do it. You do it. I'll give you half of my earnings, <laughs> and I'll give you co-credit on the installment on the latest art. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, no, he's probably part of her, her thing. Oh, that's creepy. Yeah. Oh. No, yeah, there are I mean, no there are no good people in this film. Paul's the only good person, and he's punished severely for his kindness, curiosity. Although, although I mean, basically, the world punishes him for sneaking a peek at Roseanne Arquette. Yeah, he definitely suffers for that. I think that's greatly. Why. You think that's why? No, I don't think that's why. <laughs> but I mean, it just what? Okay, lesson. You know, maybe. Don't go out in the middle of the night with just like a $20 bill and no backup plan. (laughs) No, I I think the first part of the sentence. No, even if it's Rosanna Arquette and she wants to meet you at 1132, don't go. Yeah. Yeah. I know. But I love that you're like, only $20? I mean, at least bring 50. (laughs) Well, I, I don't know. I mean, you know what? My mom always said like nothing good ever happens after midnight. And I think that... Your mom says that? Yeah. What does she mean by that? Like, you know, like, come home, don't be out, you know, getting into trouble. Then I was like a teenager. Oh, man. Your mom has missed out some good times. (laughs) What? Were you out, like, a lot when you were younger? When I was in my 20s, I was a vampire. Now I'm like... (laughs) Okay, we'll finish this movie. It's 8.30. <laughs> yeah. So someone whose career, unfortunately, didn't quite uh, go up with this movie, unfortunately, was Griffin Dunn. I love this guy. Um, yeah, because uh, I had never heard of him. Well, I'll talk about it for a second. He's a wonderful actor. You know, American Werewolf in London is probably his most best well, best known movie, and he's, he's excellent in that. He's excellent in this. So... He still does supporting roles now and then. You'll see him do character work in movies. 
And he produces a lot. You'll see his name, the executive producer, Griffin Dunn. He did two movies after this that killed his career, and they were leading roles. One was he was in the Madonna vehicle, Who's That Girl? And that movie, I mean, it just didn't work. You know, it's it's nobody's fault. It's not Madonna's fault. I mean, the movie just doesn't work. It's a bad film. But then he did a film, and Marty and I talk about Marty. Hey, Marty, my executive producer. Uh, we talk about this movie a lot because the fact that this movie even exists is kind of astonishing. So Griffin Dunn did this movie called Me and Him. Do you know what that movie's about? No. Do you want to guess? Give me three guesses. It's about, wait, it's called Me, me and Him? Me and Him. What's that movie about? And Griffin Dunn is the me? I'm not saying oh, that. Wait. What's it about? Is is it about like him and a dog or something? That's a good one guess. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, him and a monkey? No. You're, you're, I love this. Keep going. One okay. More. Him and... Uh, I don't know. Okay. No, no. I, I, An elephant? Good guesses. So, no, this, this is good. So, I swear to you, I swear to you, I'm not making this up. It, it's going to sound like I'm making a joke. This is a real movie. Okay. So, Griffin Dunn plays a man whose penis talks to him. And it's called Me and Him. The penis is voiced by Mark Lynn Baker of Perfect Strangers. So another Perfect Strangers reference. So you know Balky's neighbor, Mr. Yes, Appleton? Yes. Mark Lynn Baker was the voice of the penis. Oh my god. And you know, like you hear that and you think, like, how could that movie possibly not be hilarious? Well, they find every way for it not to be it's funny. It's not funny. It's so terrible. It's embarrassing how they take like it you know Wait, it, how does it talk to him? Like like only he can hear it. Oh, like telepathically talks to him? Yes. It's a telepathic penis. <laughs> it's jokes like, you know, like he goes into a club and like Mark Lindbergh is like, hey, come on, let's go check her out. It's that kind of thing. Oh. There's a dream sequence. I mean, it's like, it's weird because to tell you, to describe it sounds kind of funny. It's like, there's a dream sequence where the penis dies and there's a funeral for the penis <laughs> and the tombstone is shaped like a penis. And it's like, you know... You figure that would work, and the, I don't know if it's the timing. I don't know if the movie is just so crappy, but, like, nothing works in that movie. It's like, you know, maybe for a three-minute Saturday Night Live skit, maybe that's why. Like, it's really that kind of a premise. But, yeah, I mean, that movie, like, I think they're like, okay, let's do Luke Who's Talking, but wait for it. Penis. Not a baby. <laughs> with talking penis. <laughs> anyway, so... Does the, it talk to him, like... Is there a scene where he's like having sex and it's talking to him? Yes. And yeah, again, like, I mean, to describe every scene in the movie, I mean, there's like a scene where he's like, I need, I need some advice about my job. Like, like he tries to get like, you know, professional advice from his penis, like nothing. <laughs> it's, it's really weird. Like, you know, by the way, this movie has not been released. It, it was on video cassettes. And when, I, when the day it came out video, I'm like, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't put that thing in the VCR fast enough. Like, oh man, me and him. I think Marty and I watched it together. I think I've only seen it once from top to bottom, but I mean, it's it's so embarrassingly, agonizingly bad. It's not funny. It's so terrible, and the fact that he was in that film, he met his he met his wife. He was married to Carrie Lowell at the time, who was in that film. But beyond that, nothing good came of that movie, and that was kind of the end of his leading man status for a while. Wow. Yeah, me and him. And by the way, like yeah, that movie like it never it barely played in theaters, and it just became like you know like I mean, that was the year of like do the right thing and crimes and misdemeanors. Some amazing movies came out in '89, you know, and they're like also released this year was on the other hand it was like me and him. So so Griffin Dunn starred in that. So that kind of ended. Oh, it's a remake of an Italian film that I will well, not try now to now. I now I want to see the Italian film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
It was number one in Germany for seven weeks. Susan, do you want to go see me and him? He's playing the theater. <laughs> what is it about, Ingo? Well, I tell you, uh, it is about a man. His <laughs> Braunschweiger talks to him on a normal basis, asks him all kinds of things. Oh, that sounds delicious. Let us go see the movie. Yeah, let's go see me and him. Hello, one for me and him, please. Oh, two, actually. Inge wants to see it, too. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I don't know what accent that was, by the way. <laughs> I think it was Swedish. Um, yeah. It, it... Oh, man. If anybody looks this up on uh, Wikipedia, like the, <laughs> the art of the... <laughs> It's like a picture. Well, that's, the, that's the German poster. The American poster is is very similar, where it's just a close up of a dude's crotch yeah. and a little cartoon bubble saying yes. "me and him." Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a close up of his crotch with a cartoon bubble. Like, wow. Yeah, that was the high concept way they promoted. No, I mean, I, I I suspect the studio knew what they had, and they're like, "Oh, this is bad. Let's just see if we can make anything off off of this." <sighs> yes, yeah, never been released. Never been released on any hard media. Never released on Blu-ray or DVD, and it needs to be. Uh, I really want to see that film again. It really should. Is it out of print? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, probably. And maybe you know, for the best. Again, seriously. Like again, talking about it is is so much better than actually sitting through. <laughs> but yeah, that's why. That's pretty much why Griffin Dunn did become a leading man because I love this guy. I would compare him to like Jeff Daniels. Mm. You know, like. You know, maybe you can come up with a more compelling choice for a leading man, but like he is reliable, he's relatable, and he just gets under the skin of every oh, character he plays. Dude, we could watch it on Roku channel. Oh, okay. Well, I know what or I'm Tubi. Gonna... Oh, it's on Tubi? Oh, yeah. That's done. I'll watch me. And... <laughs> Let's watch me and him. Because we really want to like, you know, after after talking about a Martin Scorsese film, we really want our listeners to go in the direction of art and, you know, and, and high creative uh, performance. Yeah. Oh yeah, there's the there's the, the yeah. theatrical poster I'm yeah, used to. Me yeah, me and him. Okay. Wow. It's on Tubi TV, folks. If you want to check it out. Wow. And I'm um, so glad we tracked that film down. Yeah, After Hours is on HBO. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <clears throat> I'm sorry, so sorry, Mr. Scorsese, that our conversation became about a talking penis film. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, for those of you who are longtime fans of Scorsese, and if, if you're like me, if you're just nerd out about this guy because you know he's just done so many different kinds of movies, um, Scorsese did a segment of an anthology film called New York Stories, and the name of that anthology segment that he did is called Life Lessons with Nick Nolte and Rosanna Arquette, and that's also about the New York art world. It's very, it feels very much like a cousin to this movie, talking about that specific moment in time, um, all these artists living in these little communities together, and you know the kind of the destruction they bring to their lives, you know. It's done for comic effect in After Hours. It's not so much for um, in Life Lessons, which is great. Um, so tell the listeners how much you hate this movie. No, I didn't you hate it. You hated it, didn't you? I didn't hate it. You know what? I Okay, the thing I told you is, okay, I, you cannot predict what is going to happen next. Yeah. There's no way. You can't get ahead of it. I no, love it. Yeah. There's no way you're ever going to know or try and figure it out. Every scene every decision that this guy makes you're like what what are you doing like it's nothing that you would ever think of so in that way it was definitely a little bit of a ride but by the time he gets like thrown out of Cheech and Chong's you know van and the plaster of Paris is just smashed on the ground. You're like, Oh, thank God he's back at his boring job. That was a wild night. Like, I didn't know if he was going to make it. I thought he was going to rot in June's apartment forever. 
So Or the other ending, which we did not see. No, no. But I, I didn't hate it, but um yeah. Now that we've talked about it, I, I do have more of an appreciation for it, I think. But you would never watch it again. I probably wouldn't watch so it. So my again. Criterion disc arrives in the mail in September, and I'm like, Jules, look what it is. I probably won't watch You're it gonna again. You're going to be like, okay, I'm going to take B on a road trip. <laughs> road trip. I mean, if there was like some interesting extras, maybe I would watch that. But okay, I'll hold you to that. Yeah, but uh, you probably catch me watching me and him you know, before you catch me watching After Hours. <laughs> Is it going to be like Die Hard and Mad Max Fury Road? I'm going to come home from work and I'm going to find you watching this movie alone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tell you listeners, that's, it's like a great source of joy and just bafflement. I come home from a long day of work and Julia's watching Mad Max Fury Road by herself. Like, oh man, I married the right person. This is great. <laughs> well, I was curious, so thought I'd put it on. All right. So, yeah, um, I love this film. I think it's a perfect movie. I really do. Um, Howard Shore's... Perfect movie? I think it's perfect. Wow. I have There's not a scene in it I, I, I don't you like. You wouldn't change anything about it? I love when he goes into the bathroom and he sees the graffiti of the shark biting on a penis. By the way, a precursor for me and him. <laughs> I love this movie so much. Um, yeah, the Howard Shore score that sounds like a clock ticking... Um, I, I I think this movie's exciting because I, I love the energy of it. I love that you're going, where is this going? And it just doesn't tell you. And every scene just, just goes in the exact opposite direction that you imagine. It's almost like the movie was designed uh, to have like this nightmare logic. But it's, again, it's it's believable enough, but it's strange enough you know, I that was, it makes you uncomfortable. I was expecting him to like have a sexual encounter at some point. Yeah. And he never does. And like Tom Cruise, a yeah, nice white chef, exactly. he's always a tourist. It he's never, never he never, never truly partakes in this world. Yeah, it never happens. And I was like, oh, that's that was surprising. Yeah. You know, because I was not, again, could not predict anything that was going to happen. Yeah. So. My other favorite movie from 85 would be Brazil, the Terry Gilliam film, which is also bizarre, also Kafka-esque, also dealing with someone who is in this nightmare spiral of an existence. Yeah. But there's also me and him starring Griffin Dunn about a man who has conversations with his penis. That film was available on Tubi and it came out in 1989, co-starring Kara Lowell. You could find that film uh, wherever uh, great films are available. So, so, so you could you know you could watch After Hours or you just watch me and him. Okay, so you. I feel like I've done a great movie a terrible disservice. You. Okay, so you wouldn't change anything? No, I love this movie. You, I, I think the it? ending is amazing. I love that he ends up at work the way he does. I mean, I, I do, you know, I, I even love the use of Cheech and Chong, which is like it's it's amazing that Cheech and Chong are on a Martin Scorsese film and that they're basically like a like a plot device. But um, yeah, no, I, I love the way the movie goes full circle. Honestly, I have weekends that feel like this movie where. You know, I just feel like the weekend is like, oh, this weekend went by too fast. It's kind of a blur. It's bizarre. Oh, now I'm back at work. It's like, what sucks more? The night that he survived or the fact that he's back at work? You know? That's kind of true. That's I feel like that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> when your work is hard and, you know, you have these nights, you know, and I certainly have it where I just, I want to, I have nights where I stay up late because I just, I want to take advantage of the time off. And for whatever whatever reason, sometimes it just doesn't go well or I fall asleep on the couch and I, you know, I wake up in the middle of the night like, like a zombie and I'm just, and I go back to work and I'm like, okay, 48 hours is just, it's gone. I don't even know what I did over the weekend. So I know how it, I definitely know how it feels. And I'll say... When I was a young college student, 
um, back when I had a girlfriend who lived in a different part of the state and I would take the bus to go see her because she wouldn't pick me up in her car. Back then, <laughs> I used to take the Greyhound to see this girl who will not be named. <laughs> so anyway, uh, what I would do is, you know, the, the, the Greyhound station would pull, pull into Denver and, you know, sometimes it would be late at night. And I would have my college roommate, my dear friend Jeff Sager, come get me because, you know, I, I didn't have a car at the time. And um, so, like, I would walk around Denver, you know, in the late 90s. It's a different deal now. But, like... Um, that was not the late 90s. That was, like, the early 2000s. Yeah, it was early 2000s. Well, I mean, like, even before, prior to, prior oh, to you know, okay. this person who she'll remain nameless um yeah no i mean like yeah when i was in the 90s and late 90s and also into the early aughts yeah i used to have these nights where i'd walk around the city i remember going to like a poetry club a poetry slam in this bar at like three in the morning like what am i doing here (laughs) you know and it's like you know i'd be listening to these young people like pineapple my snapple my life is grapple (laughs) what am i doing here listening to bad poetry I should be asleep. It's three in the morning. My brain isn't even functioning. I'm drinking like a Shirley Temple so I can stay awake and listen to bad beat poetry. This is awful. And like I would, I remember like at one point I walked outside the club and it's like, do I walk around the city at night or do I go back and listen to this bad, you know, poetry club, slam poetry? Um, anyway, like I've had nights like that where it's like, you know, again, it's not just that the city is so different at night. People are different at night. When when we're when we're supposed to be sleeping, our brains don't function the right way. Reality seems different. That's why my mom said that. That and you were like making fun of her. But she missed out on slam poetry oh, jam. Yeah. Okay. Crapple in your snapple. Crapple my snapple. I've been to a golf club once. My friend, uh like on his name, I believe it was uh Jeremy. Um no, different dude. Sorry. So I had a friend in college who took me to a golf club one night because I was in a play he wrote uh, called Stigma. And uh, he wanted me to see what it was like because it was a play about his life and he had gone to a lot of golf clubs. So I remember going to this golf club dressed kind of like Griffin Dunn in After Hours. <laughs> you know, like I just got off of work. I remember walking around like... Did they want to give you a mohawk? No, but they looked like they wanted to kill me because i remember going down because i'm like i'm like where's the bathroom joshua that was his name joshua schrader he's no longer with us he's a wonderful playwright great actor but like he was playing he was he was a goth guy and i loved him and he wanted me to basically play a member of his family he's like you got to see my world so he takes me to this goth club and i remember i'm walking down the hall and it was all these like white faces hair slicked back they all look like vampires and you know josh is like the bathroom's down there so he points and I'm walking down the hallway and I'm just seeing like all these angry vampire eyes watching me as I'm walking down the hallway <laughs> and I'm watching and I'm looking down You're the like, hallway who's this preppy yuppie I'm guy? watching Joshua get smaller and smaller as going down the hallway like am I gonna am I ever gonna get out of here yeah no I bet yeah so oh so you really relate to this guy this I've character. had well I mean I don't think I've ever been in that kind of danger that he's in but I certainly I understand I, I understand his fascination with it, why he lingers, as we were talking about, like why he's in Rosanna Arquette's apartment that long. Like why didn't he get out of there so much sooner? Because he's curious. It's like what is going to happen? This isn't like what the world is like at the daytime. Different rules. Yeah. It's after hours. Yeah. <laughs> so five stars for me. I think it's a what? masterpiece. Yes. I think it's a great film. Oh, my God. You are appalled. How many stars did you give it? <laughs> I I got to say like probably two, two. and a half. Oh, okay. That's more than I thought. Yeah. 
that's exactly two and a half more stars than I thought you'd give it. So good. Yeah. Cool. I right. mean, no, it was it was. How good. many stars do you think you're going to give me and him? <laughs> I'll probably end up giving it like half a star. Because if it's not funny, then it's pointless. Yeah, it's not funny. Okay. It's not funny. So, I'm probably just You're still going to watch it, are you? Uh, I mean, I'm curious. I want to just like see like the first 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like the first 10 minutes is like, oh, it was great for 10 minutes. No, I, that movie just is a non-starter. As soon as that penis starts talking, the movie just Poor is the movie's over. He, yeah. He's just like. He's, he's a great actor. It sucks that, you know. Yeah, you know who's that girl was very high profile. It was a very big movie for Madonna. The soundtrack was a huge hit, so everybody knew it was coming. It was a highly hyped summer movie, and it just it was a dog. And the movie died quickly, and then me and him came next. And it's like, oh god, like it, the, he's still done a ton of stuff. He has, but again, it's it's character work, and and I don't say like he's diminished, like he doesn't do good work. No, he does great work. I've seen him in stuff. He was in Dallas Buyers Club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's popped up in supporting roles and character roles, and he's great. And again, he's executive produced some really great movies. I don't mean to say like like he you know his career was over, but I mean the whole leading man thing, which should have happened more. I mean, he should have had like Michael Keaton's career. Frankly, he oh. should he could have had that. You know, I think after this movie, it looked like that was going to happen. Um, and it didn't because he did the talking penis movie. Yeah. He was in a lot of TV too. Yeah. Yeah. He's great. No, he never stopped working. He's great. He comes from an actor family. Um, yeah. Oh, that's where I saw him. Okay. He was in This Is Us, the TV show. I thought you were going to see my girl. This Is Us. No, he was, um, the main guy's brother and they, yes. The Studley TV doctor? What? That's the show with the the guy who's like the 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 studly TV doctor, right? That guy? No, no, the family, Mandy Moore. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. It, okay, yeah. Because I was watching him in this movie. I'm like, he looks familiar, but I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't place him. So, mm. anyways, all right, I figured it figured it out. So, what do you think you're gonna see next? The Last Temptation of Christ. Or me and him. Well, okay, you and I did talk about reviewing The Last Temptation of Christ. I missed I've never my, seen well, it. I missed my window. I was actually going to write about it and publish an article around Easter time. I'm really glad I didn't do that. That might have gotten me in some trouble. So, <laughs> Mr. Window. I know. I should, yeah, those windows are deadly. But no, I, I will uh, because this year is, what, 35 years? It's the 35th anniversary of that film. And I do want to go back and look at it. It's, it's to say the least, it's one of the most unusual and remarkable films that Scorsese has made. So I want to look at that. No, seriously, if you're a fan of Scorsese and you've seen Mean Streets and Goodfellas and The Parted and, and you know, Casino and all those great gangster movies, and they are, they are great, but this guy. He had so much in his arsenal. He's done every genre you can think of. Yes, even musicals. Um, Scorsese is he's, he's one of our greatest living filmmakers because there's just no film that he can't make materialized into celluloid, into film. This is a guy who lives, breathes, eats cinema, and he is capable of, of giving credibility and authenticity to anything that he makes. I mean, After Hours doesn't feel like a movie that was shot on sets. It feels like a movie about a guy who enters another world or another version, like The Mirror, the other side, the you know Alice in the Looking Glass you know, version of New York. Um, he's a, it's one of our great masters, and this movie is a masterpiece. All right. That concludes our conversation of After Hours. Thanks, everyone.